Um, hello, I am Maggie Ferguson. I'm the director of the Royal Society of Literature, and we are delighted to welcome you here today and delighted to be contributing again to the LSE Festival. I think this is our fourth year here, and we're very happy to have this friendship. Um, for those of you who don't, I can see a lot of RSL members in the audience, but for those of you who aren't yet members, uh, just to tell you a tiny bit about us, we're based down the road in Somerset House, and for an annual subscription of just £50, um, uh, membership secures you free entry to over 20 events a year. Um, we've got some very exciting things coming up. Uh, next Monday, we have the wonderful veteran travel writer Derv Le Murphy joining Sarah Wheeler in a conversation entitled Travellers in Skirts. Uh, the following Monday, Laura Feigl and Juliet Gardner will be discussing the lives of uh, writers who lived in London through the Blitz. Uh, and the Monday after that, we have the poets Alice Oswald and Robert, Ro Robin Robertson uh, giving our T.S. Eliot memorial reading. Uh, at which event, um, T.S. Eliot's pen will be presented to the Royal Society of Literature and one of our fellows will sign into our great book with it. Um, Following them in our summer programme, we'll have Richard Maybe talking about nightingales. We'll have the great pop star Tracy Thorne on her new memoir, Bedsit Disco Queen. Uh, Grey Gowry, Fiona Sampson and Roy Foster talking about Yeats and England. And the cult teenage writer Neil Gaiman, uh, followed by Emma Donoghue, uh, best-selling author of Room. Uh, so do pick up membership information and programmes on your way out. Um, before we start today's conversation, I've been asked to ask you please to switch off your mobile phones or switch them to silent. Uh, and I've been asked to tell you that there will probably be a podcast, but I have to make it clear that in case there are technical difficulties, we shouldn't promise that. Um, there will be books on sale afterwards, and uh, both Hermione and Jenny, I think, are happy to sign their books. Hermione will be introducing Jenny Uglo, uh, but just to say a quick word about Hermione Lee... Um, She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and president of Wolfson College, Oxford, and one of our most highly respected biographer, author of lives of Elizabeth Bowen, Willa Cather, Virginia Woolf, and Edith Wharton, and soon uh, her, in the autumn, her biography of Penelope Fitzgerald will be coming out, so that's incredibly exciting. Um, looking at all the rave reviews of all her books on... Um, the internet last night. I think they're summed up by one for the Edith Wharton book in The Independent, which simply said, this is a glorious book. So, a <laughs> hand to Thank you. Well, it's a great pleasure. It's a huge pleasure and an honour for me to introduce Jenny Uglow, a biographer, historian, editor, essayist, reviewer, art critic historical advisor for television adaptations of great books, gardener, choral singer, walker, wife, mother, grandmother, feminist, and friend. In fact, she is a writer whom everyone, when they read her, thinks of as a friend, welcomingly opening the door onto the worlds and lives she wants us to know about with sympathy, deep knowledge, and burning imaginative energy. So she's going to talk uh, to us and to me today about her most recent book, The Pine Cone, the story of Sarah Losh and the extraordinary Cumbrian church, which was her life's work. And then if we've got time, we might talk a bit more widely about Jenny's own 
life's work. Mm. So to start with, Jenny, so Sarah Losh was a pioneering woman architect and a kind of feminist in her day, perhaps. So I suppose it's a good moment to be talking about her in sort of na- National Women's History Month and, and at a time when yes. there are controversies about women architects. Aren't yeah, there? absolutely. And that's why I'm, I'm really pleased to be here because it is space for thought and also with uh, women's history it's so wonderful to know that LSE are taking over the women's library mm-hmm. and that's going to be celebrated next week um, and uh, uh, Sarah Losh uh, I had thought of as an architect and of course there were no women uh, architects in the uh, early 19th century when she was working um, and so I was, I was sort of jolted to read Zaha Hadid in The Guardian just recently mm-hmm. talking about how hard it is to be a women architect today and uh, how conservative the architectural establishment is mm. and how women get a rotten deal. And this is clearly a subject of controversy, but also of passion. Um, and, and I think that we're celebrating pioneers also in this festival. Mm. And um, Sarah Losh, just absolutely out of her own individual burning desire to build really was a pioneer so she would not she would never have described herself as an architect because she simply couldn't have done at that yeah, time is that yeah. right i think no. that's right mm. I, 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 no, and she didn't think of herself as professional it's it's much more uh an, an artist in stone as she has yes. been described so how on earth did she come to be doing this extraordinary church? You described the ad- one of the adjectives you use for her is indomitable. Yes. And she clearly had to pu- push her way to get this work done. So yes. we'll talk about the kind of opposition and the way she started off. And yes, yes, I will. Well, uh, I, I think some people here have probably been to Rhea in Cumbria. Have, have you? You wave at me. (laughs) (laughs) And you know it isn't a tiny village in which Sarah Losh created this whole landscape of memory, not just simply building a a church. Um, And um, she she came about it. She was the uh, elder of two daughters of the local squire, uh, John Losh. Um, And uh, her mother died when they were young, there was a brother who was disabled, couldn't inherit. So it was really the girls who took over mm-hmm. the estate when their father died, 1814. Um, and around them, everybody was busy improving, you know, and, or, and improving meant looking backwards and redoing your house and things like that. And, they, and the, the two sisters travelled. They travelled in Europe. They went to Pompeii. They saw Italian uh, architecture. They came back. They improved their own house. And then they built a school for the village in a sort of Tudor style. Um, And clearly they had ambitions to do more. Mm. Um, And when uh, Catherine, the younger sister, died, um, Sarah really began to build. And a lot of it is in her memory. But indomitable is the word because she had to get around the extraordinary village organisation, which the little village is run by the uh, body called the Twelve Men. (laughs) And of course her father, as a squire, was the leader of the Twelve Men. But Sarah herself couldn't be because uh, she was a woman. And not only that, of course, the parish is run uh, by the diocese in Carlisle. So she had to persuade the Twelve Men, first of all, this Mm -hmm. was a good thing to do, and then somehow persuade uh, the 
Bishop of Carlisle, Bishop Percy. And I think when everybody goes there, even today, they think, how on yeah. earth did that bishop allow her to do it? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but she just knew how to drive her yeah. way. And she, and she was very hands-on, wasn't she? I mean, yes. the, there, there's a passage that you quote where there's a male commentator on the church, but very impressed by her knowledge and her skills and her, you know, and she actually did some of this work herself. So this was someone who was really engaged in the whole thing. Yes, I, I think she designed it, she drew it, she worked with a local mason called William Heinsohn who was working in all the villages and was actually a tenant of hers and his son who was a sculptor and I think they learned you know she when I say indomitable she wasn't Mm. grand I think the Mm. one amazing thing about the church is the richness of local craftsmen she spotted local talent and she was not uh, looking down on them she would learn from these men so she designed it herself she talked to the Heinzers. She was there working out the drainage problems and the puddles mm. and the so on. Mm. Lots of the carving she, she actually did mm. herself. Mm. So um, before we talk more about the church, just a bit more about her. Um, she's independent. She's sort of self-educating. She's obviously very, very clever, yeah. very intelligent. She decided not to marry her closest companion was her sister. She she has this thirst for knowledge, and and at one point you describe her like sort of almost like an early version of, a, a, like a Dorothea in 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 the yes, Middlemarch, and yes. she must presumably also have had in order to do this quite a lot of money. Yeah. So where does the money yes. come from? Well, the the um, the family, as I said, had, had their land in Rio, south of Carlisle, um, but they also. Uh, the brothers were of that generation uh, where experimental philosophy is a thing that you do and you have a furnace in your garden and, you know, <laughs> set off. And, and they became extremely interested in chemistry. And her father and another brother, William, really uh, set up the first alkali works on the Tyne. There were a lot of connections across, the, uh, the, always in that period, between Carlisle and Newcastle. People moved backwards and forwards. Um, and um, that is really what Sarah inherited, and that's where her money came from. So, so one, she is both absolutely of the new world uh, in terms of industry. She described herself in the census as a soda maker. She not a landed uh, woman. You know, she was proud to be part of that. Um, but also looking back, and she did to have this uh, extraordinary self-education, as you say, but she's partly educated by an uncle, James Losh, who was a close friend of Wordsworth and Coleridge, and she's reading, and she went to Humphrey Davies' lectures. You know, she's, she's a, at a sort of cutting mm. edge of ideas mm. about poetry and science and culture. And it's, it, it, one of the things that's so gripping about the book, which I'm sure most people here have, have, have read, is the fact you think, so you start on and you think, oh, it's going to be about this really remote little yes. village <laughs> in the middle of nowhere in, 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 in Cumbria. And then it sort of opens out and be, it becomes very, very uh, concerned with and fascinating about the changing economic landscape yes. of England and the kind of changing technology. So there's this sense of these sort of links and the, 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 the incoming railway, the glass-making, yes. the alkali work. So that's part of the story, isn't it? Yes, it is. She, she is... A, a, I mean, even in the village, um, she was a well-known local figure uh, sort of as a philanthropist and as a, 
uh, she would argue for the rights of, of, of local people. And at that point, Carlisle, like many northwestern towns, has its cotton mills mm. um, and its weavers. And she is very, very much concerned with their struggles and, as you say, with the coming of the railway. Mm. Um, uh, and, and I think it's a peculiar point at, at that time, as I said, of people being concerned about progress, concerned about social reform, but also as if to a way of identifying the nation or who you are, also looking back, like Scott's novels. Mm, mm. So let's, let's get on to the ideas of, for, of the church, the ideas mm. she had about the church. I don't know if you want to put a... a well, no, we're there. We're there. <laughs> so yeah. it's, as you've described it, and people who've seen it will know, that it's the most mm. extraordinary building. It has a very individualistic uh, yeah. style. Where did these ideas come from? Was, would you describe her as an antiquarian? Um, yes, I would. And, and <coughs> I think for those who haven't seen the church, see, here is Sarah, done by a local <laughs> apothecary, no grand portrait. Can you see that? Uh, yes. No, oh, someone's going to come and do but it. But not so down that I can't read any of my notes. No, but you can't see a thing. <laughs> but I have to go back to that first slide, which is wonderful. Oh, got to go outside. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, she... Are we getting there? Yeah, we're getting there. Oh, good. There she is. Right. That's fine. Well, uh, just to go back, in case you missed it, I want to show these yeah. extraordinary carvings in the apse, which will show that th this is the kind of church that we might recognise, but we're not uh, going to recognise these strange... Uh, lotuses and fossil forms and birds and beasts which are sort of primitive I mean and they look forward they're almost Eric Gill like and they're very very strange powerful stuff um, but this is the little church at Rear and when you come to it you think oh little Norman Byzantine church you know nothing special about that and then you think hang on this is 1840s when everybody is building Gothic why have we got in this little village uh, a sort of Tuscan mm. Byzantine church and that is the kind that I think she had seen in Italy with her sister and then when you enter it I'll come to the carvings in a moment mm. um, it is this beautiful space um, magical acoustics too and it is filled with uh, carvings uh, which are just as strange as the ones that I've just shown you and it has this lovely apse it's a very primitive church um, yet very beautifully warm um, and absolutely right for a village so mm. it's a f church full of ideas but it's also for a village mm. Mm. and and um, to go on to what you said about an antiquarian I think her, some of her ideas came from Italy where she travelled and what she read about architecture um, they came too with this idea of looking back before uh, the Reformation and, and before mm. uh, even the medieval Gothic to the um, but to the Norman um, heritage, and that relates to her uh, own um, background and to Cumbria itself. Those of you who know it uh, will know it is full of uh, uh, wonderful Norman uh, buildings. This is the strange Abbey of Holm Cultrum, this marshes near the Solway, where her family came from. Um, and if you look at the eagle and the bells on the top, you see some. Um, a resemblance to the little church we've just seen. Mm. These are carvings at Bridekirk near Cockermouth on the font, which are Viking and Celtic and very, very alive. And this is a uh, 18th century drawing 
of the carvings on the church at Bewcastle, just to the north of the country, the wonderful abbeys on the way, like Lanacost. And certainly Catherine and uh, Sarah and her sister Catherine were very struck by these. Mm. It was a time of the antiquarian societies are, are beginning. Again, women can't belong, but mm. they all correspond. They all notice this. So can I ask you, just while this is up, that um, this antiquarian fascination, she's, she's reading antiquarian. Antiquarians themselves are very interested in yeah. Cumbria, as you've said, because of the Celtic traces and the and Roman the, traces. Yeah. She goes to Italy. She's gripped by Pompeii. Yes. Um, she, they go and look at Bucastle Cross near Hadrian's Wall, and then she has that copied in her church. Yes. So is this, is this a kind of um, wanting to uh, recreate or go back into the past, or is it, a, is it a, uh, an idea of linking yourself ah. back to the past? What is the yes. impulse here? I think that's very interesting. It isn't going back to the past, and it isn't like a, a sort of theme park of the past, you know, kind mm. of Victorian Disneyland of the past. <laughs> it, it is much more... Uh, as if you're saying to yourself and the people around you, uh, this is where we come from. We're part of the community that have had these ideas, that have, have seen the world in this way for centuries and centuries. And it links to you to the uh, stories of the Celtic saints in that region, to the mm. Romans and so on. And, and, it, and it's, a, it's a sort of tribute to the past, but it's also a way of um, seeing human and and history and the history of belief as as something stratified you know that you can that that we uh, as a sort of not quite evolution but that we come from this rich rich loam of wonderful uh, ideas mm. and they can get buried and in fact uh, they can literally get mm. buried. Mm. Um, I've got mm. the next uh, the slide is this, the Cornish one. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th- yeah. This is the This is the first building that Sarah built on her own after Catherine died. And these sisters had been inseparable. She was grief-stricken. It's very much a thing of the period. It's like Jane Austen and Cassandra, all like the Bronte sisters. Um, You think of Charlotte pacing the room on her own. And Sarah was very much like pacing on her own. And and one of the things that she heard about the year uh, after... Uh, Catherine had died, was this extraordinary church of St. Piran in Cornwall, on the coast in Cornwall, uh, which was a little Celtic oratory but had been buried by the sand dunes for centuries and there were great storms (coughs) and it was uncovered um, and it was thrilling to the antiquarians and it had this wonderful uh, doorway. It's now been covered again. All that that there is is a little stone saying where (laughs) it is. So it's that sense that history comes and goes and covers and uncovers us. And, and she got the exact dimensions, and she built on the hill between the village and her house, so you could see it as you walk. This little mortuary chapel, which is an exact copy, um, copied the door as well. And um, and this is what I said about local talent. This young uh, uh, mason's son, uh, William Hineson, she got him to carve these uh, faces, which are on the door and the lion's head, and they are so strong mm. and powerful. So that is, as it were, bringing the past into physical life, but also knowing that it's actually gone. But talking about physical life and talking about the past, you, you mentioned earlier that she described herself as a soda maker and that she thought of yeah. herself very much as a modern person. 
It, what makes this so, so curious and such an extraordinary enterprise, as you describe it, is that Sarah Losh also had a keen sense of the new. Yes? She, she, yes. Was, she thought of herself as modern. And so she's very interested in the new sciences, yes, ah, which yes. also get into <laughs> the making of the church. They yeah? do, they do. Um, yes, she read the Gentleman's uh, magazine. You know, she read the Quarterly Review. She read what was happening. Um, and, um, and one of the things that... Um, uh, a particular interest in her, I think, is actually thinking, the, thinking about the past in what is thought of as scientific terms. I mean, the biblical notion of creation has gone out of the window. But the more that people, uh, particularly geologists, looked at the Earth, the more they realised they're not just talking in terms of thousands, we're talking in millennia, you're talking distant, distant ages. Um, and, of course, as she was building the church, or thinking about it in the 1830s, the great excitement um, was um, uh, was the uh, discovery of fossils, um, and also the discovery of what were called the big dinosaurs. I mean, you know, the huge ones, <laughs> the unearthing of these. Um, and so this is that the slide is called, it's called an, an, an ancient, another ancient Dorset. This is what you imagine the Jurassic Coast in Dorset would have looked like with these great creatures going around. Um, and in the carvings at Rhea, one of the stories about this, which is um, uh, one particular Buckland, a particular expert on fossil tracks, um, and uh, have we got time for this? Yes, just across lots. the Solway um, <laughs> on the great sandstone slabs uh, in Cocubrishire, uh, they found very, very strange tracks and, of course, called in Buckland to say what they were. And Buckland um, got his wife, Mary, who was also actually a paleontologist, but she was his wife, so she had to do domestic things. And he got Mary to make pastry, and they covered their kitchen table <laughs> with pastry. And then they went out in the garden, and they got their pet tortoise. And they, ah, and they put the tortoise on the pastry, and it made exactly the same trap. They said, aha, it is a dinosaur, an ancient turtle. So, so this, our turtle at, at rear, winged turtle, strange winged turtle, is very much part of that absolutely up-to-date current fascination with dinosaurs, again, with buried life, with forms that have disappeared. And, and um, the Newcastle connection is important too, because not only is the alkali, they have a lot of interest in the mines, um, and uh, as people went into these mines in Cumbria and in Newcastle, they found the whole, this wonderful description, the whole ceiling actually covered with fossil mm. ferns and flowers and things like this. So, so, so it's about strata. I mean, what yes. you're describing is kind of like an almost an evolutionary building which has its strata. And I think she buried medieval stones in the foundation yes, of did. the church. Yes. Is that right? So, so what the kind of building, it, it, to, in a way, to sum up the building that she's going for is a sort of not a pagan building exactly, but a, a pre-Reformation, a building that goes right back yes. into, into pre-history. Is that, is that right? Yes, it, it, um. goes back in, it goes back in time into recognisable forms that you would see locally, these wonderful Norman churches. It goes back beyond that to the idea of the simple early uh, Christian church before uh, the Gothic. It goes back beyond that to say... 
well, what, what, what were people believing in? And uh, so what kind of symbols were they using to talk about life? And then actually beyond that, to, to, through these kind of ideas, these wonderful fossil windows, to the whole history of the physical world itself, of which humanity is just a, a part. So um, if we broaden the church out to, as it were, the intellectual context of, of the time that she's working on it and thinking about it, I suppose that you could describe her as a kind of romantic figure yes. or someone who in many ways ties in with the thinking and the painting and the literature of, of, of the romantics, perhaps partly in this use of symbolic yes. objects uh, which relate to the, to the landscape. I think you can. I, I think, um, uh, to me, she's a romantic in a Wordsworthian sense of taking something which is ordinary, local stone, local mm. material, making it something strange and wonderful. But also um, this idea that we are part of the, uh, you know, the rolling eons of nature. And if we're trailing clouds of glory, it's because we come from that whole human, not just human past, but cosmic past. Um, and, um, uh, and, and also, the, it, it, to me, it's like the Lucy poem, as you know, says, when he died, rolled round with rocks and, stern, and stones and trees and earth's eternal course. So it's a sort of <coughs> pantheism as much as a Christian religion. And, and um, f- for example, these are the windows above the, uh, the west door and the west door itself. Um, and they're, they're carved with uh, wonderful fossil forms of... Uh, ferns and bees and insects and they're really sort of land, sea and air and the door does have this uh, symbols which are of ancient religions, the lotus and, and the pine. And the pine cone. <laughs> um, we come to the pine cone. But I, would, would you read a paragraph or two about the pine cone? Yes, Hermione has, 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 <laughs> warned, has warned me she wants me to read, which I know just, normally do. So. Do you mind? No, we I could just mind. carry on chatting. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's um, just this wonderful bit about the pine cone. It seems to fall very well. Well, I here. think it probably... I, I think probably, actually, as you led us through it, it explains why it's there, um, or it explains it relates to things that we've talked about. Um, this is just when when she's deciding to do it in her own style, not in the Gothic style. Um, and I've written um, like a geologist demonstrating the strata of belief. She decorated the church with symbols that looked back to earlier religions, myths and cults that lay buried beneath Christian imagery and ritual, as the wheat of Demeter and the grapes of Dionysus lay behind the bread and wine of the sacrament. On her carvings, pillars and altar, she placed the lotus, one of the early symbols of creation. The myths of the Nile told that before the universe existed, there was only an infinite ocean, the primeval being, none. Out of none, a lotus flower arose on a patch of dry land, and as the blossoms opened, a child stepped out, the self-created sun god, Atun, or Ra. The lotus was the womb of earth and light, its petals closing at sunset and opening at dawn. In Eastern religions, Sarah knew the lotus, whose flowers were untouched by the water around it or the mud from which it grew, represented detachment from worldliness. 
To the Romantics and to Sarah, it was a symbol of light, its petals representing the rays of the sun, and also receptivity, reproduction, and continuing light. The lotus, pomegranate, and barleycorn, pain, night thought, were emblems of the female passive generative power. (laughs) Their counterpart, the male or active generative attribute, was the pine cone. (laughs) In Assyria, the pine cone was a token of reproduction. In Babylon, it was carried by the creator god Marduk. In Egypt, a pine cone staff was a symbol of Osiris. Papyrus showed the dead bearing pine cones on their heads before they received judgment. In ancient Greece, a pine cone tipped staff marked the cult of Dionysus, and in Rome, the cult of Bacchus. Pine cones abounded in the decoration of Catholic churches, as Sarah had seen in Rome, and in Masonic halls. For the Masons, and her father was a a Mason, uh, they were linked to the notion of enlightenment, associated with the pine cone-shaped pineal gland, which Descartes had suggested might be the abode of the spirit of man. The soul, he wrote, has its seat in the little gland which exists in the middle of the brain, from whence it radiates forth through all the remainder of the body by means of the animal spirits, nerves and even the blood. The cone's slow ripening and opening to release the seeds came to stand for the expansion of consciousness. So, Sarah's church would not be Gothic or even pure Romanesque. Its simple form would be wreathed by images that conjured up buried connections with ancient religions, Greek, Roman, Egyptian, Hindu, Buddhist, the strata of spiritual rather than geological time. Mm. That's lovely. That's what we think. Yeah, that's very... You can see it. (laughs) Not me. It's so... Um, it's so mixed, isn't it, that image? Because it's partly about regeneration and, and fecundity and the spirit, but it's also tremendously much about death. And, yeah. and, and so much of this has to do with, uh, not obsession's the wrong word, but a preoccupation with the concept of the memorial or the mortuary. Or yeah. the, you know, and there are images, aren't there, of, sort of belladonna and bats. And so there's something also very romantic in that sense, something quite... Dark and it is yes I, I it is I mean when you say it like that there there's a sense some of it's it's actually a, an extremely joyful uh, church in terms mm-hmm. of the carvings um, but there is something too uh, dark as you say it, it to me I kept thinking of Kublai Khan or mm. rather I kept thinking of Zanadu and the palace which is built and so beautiful, but it's on the edge of the abyss, you know, and the water's flowing underneath yes. and, uh, and the crying of the, of the, um, the prophet. Um, and, and Sarah knew that, you know, she was mortal, but more important, uh, her, sister had, her sister had gone. So she's a spirit alone. So it's also about how to uh, sustain yourself, how to live in this, in this perilous world. And the way to live is to actually join yourself, I think, in a communion with the world, the earth, and, and with the people around, the village and the past. And that communion is fantastically practical and pragmatic. So one of the things, you've already mentioned it, this business of working with the, working with the local people. And there's a kind of politics of that too, isn't there? There's a strong strain of radicalism yes. in, in Sarah's family. Yes. Um, and uh, although, you know, you've described in one way a kind of self-education, 
educated, wealthy, landowning person yeah. with a lot of clout. Uh, she's also someone with, with strong, uh, quite strong political ideas in as far as you can discover them. Yes, yeah? Yeah, yeah, she is. Um, the, they were a radical family. Um, they were uh, typical in, uh, as we think of Wordsworth and Coleridge at that point, in embracing the French Revolution and the ideas of equality and liberty and fraternity of the revolution. Um, unlike Wordsworth, her uncle, who's very important to her, James Losh, uh, didn't change his ideas. And, and if you're interested in Wordsworth, the, the one person that he wrote to about why he had changed his ideas um, was James, who was a very thoughtful uh, Unitarian, a good man, a, a, a leader of reform, anti-slavery, but also the reform bill. And Sarah wrote, she, she, we have lost, as we know, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of her, her diaries, but um, she was extremely interested in the progress mm-hmm. of uh, electoral reform um, and of uh, uh, local reform and of welfare, mm-hmm. schools, mm-hmm. Um, so on. So, so we're going away from the church a little bit now. So in fact, we could bring up the, the lights a bit if, well, if that was I possible to just you want to show another image I want image to show the final that. one oh, just good. to, okay. just to Sorry. Uh, oh, this is yes. the carvings inside carving. to show you that richness yes. of the world and that's she inside did that. the church she did that yes she the carved the font one. and yeah. she carved the lotus um, and um, oh. <laughs> uh, yes uh, so there, there, we'll, we'll just to leave that there Perfect. so uh, thinking about her both balancing between the past and the thank you and, and, and the future. Do you think, she, do you think Sarah Losh was an influential person? Um, she had a legacy? Yes. Well, <laughs> she... Uh, no, I don't, and I think that's why I thought of Dorothea in Middlemarch. Mm. And, you know, I think it is with the, with the, the, the sort of trickling uh, influence, the quiet lives, the hidden away. Um, people came, and she didn't have a direct influence because undoubtedly she would have been thought was very eccentric. And uh, uh, sort of county friends who visited the church would go, oh. <laughs> and they seem to say in their diaries, been to see new church. Really? Mm. You know, <laughs> not how amazing it was. <laughs> um, locally, they were, villages are, are extremely uh, proud of her. Um, but people who go now say, but it's evidently an arts and crafts church, you know, mm. because she reused local materials. All the pews are trees that are blown down in the storm and things like that. And then they go, no, hang, no, hang on, it's 50 years before the mm. Arts and Crafts movement. Mm. Or someone said, but it's full of the ideas of Ruskin. And they, Ruskin writes the Stones of Venice 10 years after she's built it. So I, she, she, she was actually also in touch, I think, with the way that ideas about aesthetics were mm. going to develop. Um, and, and, in, and she did have an influence, but it's going to be an indirect one. For instance, um, uh, Rossetti... Again, it's about ten years after she uh, died. Uh, Rossetti came um, uh, through the village and stayed with her um, uh, her cousin, who, to whom she'd left uh, uh, her estate. Really, um, the link is with uh, Alice Boyd, who was a pre-Raphaelite woman artist in Scotland. And Rossetti's going up there, and then immediately writes to his mother and also to J.D. Morris, saying, "I've just seen this most extraordinary building. This woman is a genius." Mm. And then describing it in rhapsodic terms mm. and saying, "I really want Webb to come and see it." Um, we don't know. There's no evidence that Webb came to see it, but he worked in the district, so it's very likely that mm. he did. And then it filters on so that you get a, a later generation, uh, actually interesting, of women at the end of the century. 
uh, working in the arts and crafts tradition who do appear to yeah. have been to see it, like Mary Watts, if, if people know the Watts Memorial Chapel. Yeah. It's very much in that line, yeah. but it's uh, 50, 50 yeah. almost exactly 50 years later. Okay. So we're taking her on to the future, and I wanted to link her also and link this book a bit with uh, other things in your work. So the image of the pine cone is an image of spirals and swirling. Um, and Sarah Losh's story, as you've been eloquently saying, kind of swirls outwards. Uh, it's local, but it's also national. It's past, but it's also present. So I, I have been struck all along by the fact there's an interest in spirals and webs and networks in all of your work. So that if, if I took you right back to Elizabeth Gaskell, there's a wonderful sentence in your book on Gaskell which says... She moves in a world where personal contacts and the flow of ideas were so interconnected that the idea of the web will not do unless one thinks of an autumn hedgerow where web after web glistens in the sun, each so intricately linked to the other that the slightest touch sets them all in motion. Or when you're writing about Buick, you say the flow of Buick's life, like all our lives, was shaped by the broad currents of the time. Different stories run together and intermingle. And when you're dealing with the lunar men, you have a web of overlapping yeah. stories. So do you, it's hard, I know, to, to think about one's work as a whole, but do you see that that's a kind of concept or an image that recurs for you and matters to you in your work? Um, yes, I, I, it, it is hard. You don't usually stand back and look down from above at your work. Um, yes, it does matter to me um, because I, I suppose when... Um, well, when I began writing uh, individual lives, I couldn't quite come to terms with the conventional, or with what was then, this is ages ago, uh, thought of it you know, as a biography, that it was actually a single life. Um, because the more I looked at people, uh, their, their lives <coughs> always seemed to bounce off others or to be about the past. And, 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 and it was that for all of us here... It, we don't. We do live a single life, and that we we think about ourselves in our head, what we're going to do, what we're saying. But but we couldn't actually cut ourselves off. So the idea of the individual genius became a, a problem for me, and um, I find it easier to see um, ideas or achievements as as always having some sort of collective mm. origin, mm. As, and then being filtered through a particular. And this also has to do, doesn't it, with Englishness or stories of England. So we get um, voices, craftsmen, um, English lives, lives of particular provincial regions and landscapes. Uh, so if I think about most of the books on George Eliot, on Fielding, on Gaskell, mm. on Hogarth, on Buick, on the history of British gardening, <laughs> on words and pictures, on the lunar men, you've got stories of English inventors and makers and craftsmen and scientists in particular places like Nutsford or yeah. Newcastle. Yeah. Um, so do you think the work in a way is a kind of... Celebration sounds a bit soppy, but a, a sort of investigation of provincial genius or the provincial um, making of things, both words and things. Yes, yeah, maybe. I mean, Hogarth is, a, is, is not 
He's but a Londoner, London is his but province. he comes from yeah. the north, you yeah. see. I'm a northerner. <laughs> <laughs> I am a northerner. And without knowing it, perhaps, um, I had got that chippiness that if you grow up in Cumbria, everything seems to happen down in London, you go, oh, hang on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it wasn't that. It's not how I started, uh, or, or I have never... I have never moved on in in that sense. It is is more that I uh, and myself am, um, what is it, sort of a, a British white middle class rooted in the regions. And um, uh, I had grown up notice. say I'd grown up noticing things or... or um, if I wanted to understand about Manchester and the Industrial Revolution, I found it fascinating to read Gaskell's novels, was it was all happening in front of me. Yeah. Um, similarly, when I wanted to know about the 18th century, uh, and this is an interesting thing, I, the, I found myself always looking at Hogarth's prints, um, because they're so full of life, um, to understand how Hogarth might have thought because of course he doesn't write he's, he's wonderfully if you look at his writing what we now call dyslexic it's a little muddle 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 um, uh, I'd get a voice that made me uh, think well who's his great mate Fielding so you read Fielding um, and, and then the Lunar Man. I mean, it just all happened in a funny sort of way so it's not a, a programme of English class mm. um, but but, uh, but then you recognise things after the Lunar Man. Elizabeth Gaskell's father was a young radical, the same age as, as Sarah Losh's parents, really, uh, um, in Manchester in the 1790s, and was fantastically fired up by the French uh, Revolution. And the people that were influential there were the, the Manchester Lytton, Phil Literary and Philosophical Society, and the people they really admired were this extraordinary group of inventors and so on called the Lunar Society of Birmingham and, and, and it, always it comes out of ignorance everything I do comes out of ignorance and you say well, who are these people mm-hmm. and then you find out and you think these are extraordinary I want to find out about more about them and I want to tell them yes. and, and the Sarah Losh thing and then it happens and with Hogarth you look and you think who is this I really want to know more and then it's so exciting that you want to tell yes. everybody else so it's, so um, but yeah. But, but, but what I realised had happened, with, with one exception, was um, that, that all the people that I had thought, to me, seemed to have achieved these extraordinary unrecognised things, because Gaskell wasn't recognised in comparison, say, with George Eliot or Dickens or so, at that point, um, um, w- w- that they all turned out to be um, uh, slightly sort of bolshy, difficult... Um, bourgeois, uh, yes. uh, provincial people. Um, and I, I suppose I actually did like that pushing from the margins. Yeah. As you say in a feature about you, uh, you describe your works being about stroppy bourgeois radicals who were fighting the centre. Yes. But of course the exception, you just mentioned that in passing there, the exception is Charles II. Yeah. And you say at the beginning of that book, it's very interesting, you say it was a challenge for you to write this book as someone whose sympathy lies, and I'm quoting you, with the radicals and artisans protesting against abuses of power. Yeah. It was a challenge for you to venture into the centre, the heart of that power. But of course what strikes one when one reads that book, The Gambling Man, of course that book is also 
full of ordinary citizens enduring plague and fire and war mm. and taxes and so on. So, yeah, in a way, it's not such an extraordinary no, deviation. No, uh, no. Um, it, uh, right, this is an authorial confession. Writers here <laughs> may recognise it. Um, after I finished writing The, the Lunar Men... Um, <laughs> I will still do this. I, I yes, said, I've never said this publicly before. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted, again, it's just provincial. I loved writing about her because I terribly wanted to write about uh, Gainsborough. You're very involved in this story, aren't you? So I said to my publishers, who have been wonderful to me throughout, I'd really like to write, I really want to write about Gainsborough. And the Lunar Men had been a sort of big canvas. So uh, suddenly I said, ooh, Gainsborough, terribly small. <laughs> Shocking, isn't it? Um, uh, isn't there, and the history, people, people are interested in the history. Um, is there another period of history that you're interested in? So I thought rather feebly, because I was fascinated by the beginnings of the Royal Society and things like that, I said, well, I'm really quite interested in the Restoration. Right. And I could have at one point gone, no, this isn't me, but you don't know. And I did. This is why Hermione is important, because there was a conference on biography, and in the middle of this conference on biography, we were in a pub, yeah. and I heard myself saying, I don't want to write a big book about the Restoration, I just want to write a really little book on Buick. <laughs> and, and so I bravely went and said that that was what I said, or I put the Restoration off. And then I realised afterwards that I had some bit of the back of your head had chosen Buick because he was literally the smallest <laughs> artist <laughs> physically in every way that they could do. Yeah. But they, so I did that. So I, I had resisted this centre. And then I thought, no, come on, you, you know, you're grown up. You often feel like about books. Because I think writing, ev- every book is f- scary to me. You know, there's a point that you think you can't do it. Come on, you're grown up. Um, you've been on the outside, you must see what it is like. And it, I wanted to see if I could actually understand how this centre that always seemed to me to be back, because all, all the people I've written about are also fighters, um, what it was like. And it seemed to me that, that the, uh, the restoration, which is a celebration of the restoration of, of uh, uh, power, I mean, that's why we call it the interregnum, as if it's completely natural always for Britain to have a monarchy, and yet I was sort of Republican. How did it work? And then the characters are fascinating, the story mm. is fascinating, the, the, the women. battles, the ideas of women. Mm. You know, so it was an adventure, um, and it was slightly different, but, but my, and I feel that's something I'm doing now, but my sympathy, when, once I was able to talk about, in, even in terms of that, it's like feeling your own pulse. You know, you're talking about the ordinary people or talking about Milton or talking about Bunyan at the same time. Uh, I knew, you know, that's where your heart It was lies. a gamble and yeah. uh, it paid off. Um, you said, you talked about being scared there and, and fear, of course, is always part of the biographical uh, operation, though I think more people would associate you with courage than with fear. Um, but one of the things you do that is alarming... Uh, is you deal with subjects where there's either enormous amounts of material or sort of no material, you know, or, uh, you yeah. know, or there's no, you know, dealing with Hogarth or yeah. Buick or Sarah Losh is not like dealing with Dickens or Virginia Woolf yeah. or, you know, where there's lots and lots and lots of letters, for instance. Yeah. So what do you... It's not so much... I, I don't want you so much to talk about, oh, well, this is how I find this yeah. archive. I mean, how do you... 
how do you approach something? How do you deal with something when there is a, a problem a, around the archive or a, yeah. a challenge with the archive? The, there's going to be a, prob- a problem about every archive. Yeah. And that it, it's either going to be very rich, in which case you're selecting. You always make. You're always inventing. It, 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 it is not fiction in that I don't want to write anything that I couldn't point to a source or, or say this is absolutely... I don't want to write, she wrote wearily, up, you know, walked wearily up the path of the, of the biography of Florence Nightingale and I her coming back, <laughs> walking weary. And I think, hang on, how do they know? I, if I do that, I want there to be a letter which said, oh, I felt so tired as I was walking. I mean, I, uh, so I'm actually quite kind of fussy. But, but if there's too much, you know that you're carving out your own... Uh, a person out of the and, and some bits of you will be selecting and rejecting mm. bits. Often, I mean, and it's quite hard if there are bits of a person that you like a friend that you would rather not think about, uh, and you've got to put them in. Um, it, 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 if if there isn't very much, uh, and, or, or it will be slightly skewed. Buick was extremely interesting. His memoir is wonderful. The second half was written during the war when he was just angry. Um, and so it's right. And the the archive from the workshop, which I used a lot, is a, a very very practical day to day workshop, and it's how you put the two together. Mm. But you're, so, partly what you might be doing, for instance, here, what do you is do? did you is deducing <laughs> um, deducing the person from the work, partly. Yes. Yeah. You have to do yes. that. And I think if you're writing. In square brackets, in answer to that question, that if you're writing literary lives, as you've also yeah. done, obviously, then you're partly deducing the person from the work. Or you're trying to cross that peculiar, shaky, strange, tortuous bridge that goes between the person and the, yes. and the work. I think you are. Um, I'm one of the uh, very interesting things to me about, about this book was, was to what extent can we read buildings, something I yeah. hadn't done before. Yeah. Um, and also how to convey in a book the three-dimensional, because somehow Hogarth's prints, you can, you can show them in the book, and the, and the narrative is, is, is two-dimensional, yeah. as it were. But how to, how to convey this feeling of working in three dimensions? And, and, um, and to that extent, it, it's probably more like writing the, a biography of a poet where you you um, want to tell the life, but also you are uh, analysing, or, or you might be looking at the ode to melancholy or something like that, and 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 de- deducing mm. what was happening in mm. the person's mm. mind. What, what you're known for? You're known for a kind of engagement, to put it at its broadest, you know, that, that you make people mind about the subject and you obviously mind about the subject. What happens to your emotions with the person that you're writing about? Is there always for you a kind of, sort of, some kind of passion going on or some involvement or some minding about the person? Um, yes. Uh, I think this is terribly hard because a bit of you is always cool. Yeah. It's like making copy out of... And your own life or other lives, you know, a bit of you are always thinking, oh, that's a good story, you know, that's mm. terrible, but, oh, that'd be good. Mm. Um, uh, and, and I do, I do care, um, I do care, for instance, about Sarah Loshin, that I want people to go to Rio yes. and go, blimey. <laughs> 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 
I find that some, sometimes, it, sometimes you, you, you have to, I, I don't know, I want to ask you how, what you feel about, mm. have to be careful. There are moments when you realise you, you, because that could, as I say, what, could unbalance the work. When I was writing about Elizabeth Gaskell, I felt I became very close. I have four children. She had four children. You know, she she was writing. Oh, that's right. Um, uh, and I knew that after that, I wanted to write about uh, a man, uh, a different period, a man, uh, not words which c- can inhabit you, but yeah. things. And that's why I, I just wanted to move away, be a bit more detached. And I realised that about Gaskell when um, in the archive at Keele, they have all the wonderful Wedgwood archive. And at that point, I'm sure it's better now, the women's letters tend not to be um, catalogued so well. You know, they leave boxes and things like that. The men's were all beautifully catalogued. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's all all, all different now. And and I remember coming across uh, one of Elizabeth Gaskell's great friends was Fanny uh, Wedgwood. And I remember coming across a letter from Fanny's daughter, Snow, saying... God, you know, Mrs. G's coming to stay this week and my mother can't stand her. And I actually was awful. I was very, I, you know, the letter sort of prickled in my hand. I was terribly upset. And then you think, maybe I'm not a dispassionate. But what about you? Have you found that? Oh, I think it's always a, a kind of strange balancing act between having to be tremendously involved uh, and yeah. also having to be extremely clinical and, uh, and yeah. objective. But, you know, people don't ask these questions if, if someone's writing a life of Stalin or <laughs> Hitler, you know. Then the passion or the affect is to do maybe with the victims of that power structure yeah. Or, yeah. With, or for the historical period. So it's kind of a sentimental <laughs> question in a way, but I just want to know what you do with your emotions, yes. you know, while yeah. you're doing... Look, I'm sure that there are many people here who want to ask you questions and I'm not quite sure how long we are but I think we've got about 10 minutes for, for, for questions so, and there's a mic, yes so could you wait, could you shoot your hands up and then wait for the mic, yes there's a lady here could you wait for the mic just so that other people behind you can, can hear thank you very much thanks it's just a very small point, I live in Cumbria and I sing in a choir and we have sung in Rio yeah. Church, and indeed, as you said, the acoustics are stupendous. Yes, quite something for a tiny little space. Yeah, Yeah. it's magic. It it was a really exciting experience for us. So this is a story rather than a question. No, I. But this is a this this fascinates me because um, I, I, I I there's a I come from Kent. We have a wonderful new music uh, a building there. Endless care has been taken on adjusting the acoustics. Um, and yet this is a very simple building. Did she know? How much did she know? And uh, I think it is. It's a bit like uh, this, a tiny version of the sage and, and uh, Gateshead. It is a box with a apse. And now that is actually ancient acoustics because that is why it was so successful as a primitive church because the preacher could stand there and their voice was echoed out and I have heard uh, you know music there but uh, most brilliantly an a cappella choir hmm. there if you get a chance let me see I'm on the tourist board really come here <laughs> tourist board <laughs> there's a question here yeah. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask um, 
if you could please tell us more about um, the relationship between Sarah and Elizabeth, was it? Her Catherine. Catherine, because as sisters, I suppose they spend so much time together. Was it very difficult to reconstruct how that relationship worked? What kind of sources right. could you yeah, find? Good. Thanks. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, that's a very good uh, question, the relationship between um, Sarah and Catherine, because they did spend their time together. And um, there, might, there were periods when they were apart, when one was staying with relatives in Newcastle, when you would think they would have written. The, real, the reason that we, we, though Cassandra Austin destroyed a lot of letters, um, the reason that we can reconstruct that relationship is that the letters between them uh, uh, do survive when uh, Jane was in goodness and Cassandra was there. This isn't the case there. So that all that we have are mentions of uh, Catherine as uh, clearly, in other people's diaries, clearly being easygoing, the word amiable, a very much yeah. word of the period, Austin word, mm -hmm. uh, is used of her a lot. Easygoing, sweet-natured, clever, philanthropic, kind. Um, I think probably in her, uh, um, Sarah is about, uh, is only t uh, two years older, but she is older, slightly in Sarah's shadow. Um, uh, and um, so, so it, it, it's, um, and in terms of actually what they did together, um, they were together in the house, they travelled uh, together to uh, Italy, they travelled, we know, on these excursions around the neighbourhood. They went to uh, Bridekirk, uh, I mean, to Bucastle together. Mm. They saw that cross when Sarah uh, uh, reconstructed it and indeed carved it in the churchyard. It says, you know, planned by two sisters as a memorial to their parents, mm. finished in sorrow by one. So, so it is in in literature or in terms of writing. Uh, one of those fascinating gaps and silences which you know is the most important thing um, and we have to imagine it. It's another one then. When you first conceived the notion of writing this book um, and you, you must have discovered that the church obviously outlived Sarah, how daunting... That's not quite the right word, because I don't suppose you're easily daunted. Was this fact that, like time, in waves beating against the church, would include necessar necessarily a generation after generation of people, so that it couldn't just be Sarah, it must be the consequences Yes. of her decision okay. to write um, about an object instead of you writing about a significant yes. person. Fact, it, it was, yes, the, the church outlives her. And more than that, it wasn't simply like a memorial chapel which has a single function. It's a parish church. Um, and it's been restored. She, she never had a red carpet down the middle. She had stone flags and bearskins of all things. You know. <laughs> so, um, and it is much loved by the people who uh, uh, lived there. It went into decline, it, holes in the roof, it's been restored, and now it's found a source of enormous pride. Um, um, and uh, that wasn't really daunting any more than um, I mean or, or it was daunting in a different way that then we open a book we you know think of the generations who've read uh, Ode to Melancholy you know, mm. as it were since then and we all make something different of it um, in this particular case um, it 
it was the great... Every book brings a present that you don't expect. Mm. And the present in this particular case um, was that I began to feel like those old advertisements for the lottery, you know, <laughs> as if the pe- the could be you and the people of the village had sort of mysteriously elected me to write this book. I wrote it with uh, the people of the village, um, with the architects, so people knew the church, people in local farms, people who'd left their family archives to Cumbria, which told you about ordinary life, um, wonderful local historians, pictures of jubilee festivals, of weddings, of girls with straw hats, you know, so that you know that that life, that she, that building that she created was part of that life. And, and uh, indeed, when it was published, and the most lovely thing was a sort of uh, great to do in the village hall with all the, the uh, WI cakes, and you know, and it's a, it, 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 the, and I think that that um, again, we have to be wary of being sentimental, but I mean, that uh, to me was was the the a, a thing that she would have been extremely mm. pleased about that that. Um, a hundred years, what is it? You know, 150 years afterwards, people were still looking in amazement and still actually living in that mm, in that I think got time for one more. Yes, da- right down here. Yeah. Sorry, you have to. Can I just shout? I just wanted yep. to know um, <laughs> how you fell upon Sarah Losh. I mean, did oh. you always know about the church? Yes. Um, that's how I how I fell upon Sarah Losh. That. Um, I knew I, I, I grew up on the coast of uh, Cumbria, the bleak um, St. Bees, and the west coast, and had friends who moved to the Eden Valley that I went to stay with. And, um, and it is so lush in comparison to the west coast, it was a wonderful place. And, and at that point, sort of saw, just had a memory of this spooky, see, it's spooky with all these mm-hmm. dragon things, this spooky building. And then many years later, went back, because I'm um, up there a lot, um, on a rainy day. And, um, it, and it, that is a bit like looking at a Buick print or looking at a Hooper. Um, Cross thought, thought, a rainy day, what should we do? Oh, I know, we'll tour around. And going to Rio, crossing the road. Um, I'm thinking this is extraordinary and the more you walked you thought this is extraordinary and then comes the question who it's so clearly the work of one person's imagination that whole landscape you know who is the person who created that and after that you, you think oh someday I, I want to write about her. Speaking of happening on things and 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 saving things up for the next for the next task, as it were. Um, and you've talked very interestingly today about how, you know, the order in which things have happened or the connections yeah. between things. So what is next? <laughs> oh. <laughs> as I said, I, I, I am sure and I, that, uh, that fellow writers will recognise this. There is a point at which I think Oh, maybe I'll have to give the advance back after all. <laughs> I'm right, uh, because it's a, d- a difficult thing. I, I wanted to... Um, I, I am interested in the lives of ordinary people, and I'm particularly interested in those lives, the way people make stories or pictures or visions or buildings or sign out of their lives at moments of intense change, the way people make sense of their lives at moments of intense change. Um, and I wanted to, I, 
I had, I had realised that against the back of a lot of these lives, um, uh, or particularly childhoods, um, there is this great endless wave of the French wars from 1793 to 1815. Um, and I wanted just to know what it was like living in Britain during the French wars. There's a simple question. If you were in sort of Derbyshire on a farm, would it make any difference at all? Mm. Um, uh, if you were a widow in Portsmouth, mm. yes, you know, how did they organise? What was it like? So I'm, I'm attempting to uh, write that write that story and instead of and and it isn't like the lunar men where there's a group of people who know each other so it's a different task it's it 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 has uh, certain people running through it who don't know each other um so it it's a a different sort of structure and i I was saying never let it be said that you set yourself easy (laughs) or simple task it will be completely wonderful and we can't wait Um, I think our lives have been somewhat enriched today so thank you very much